Do you think that classical music is not for you and you don't know where to start? Or maybe you're a fan already and would welcome a fresh approach. You've come to the right place. Perfect pitch is for everyone, beginners or experts, whatever your age. Lend Nick Healy Hutchinson your ears for his weekly dose of classical music that will enrich your life. Of all the composers whose music I really enjoy, none seems to fit into the Marmite category quite so well as the German Johannes Brahms, who lived between 1833 and 1897. I wonder if this is some strange reflection of the way he was received in his own lifetime. It's astonishing how vilified he was by so many composers whose lives crossed with him at some point. As far as I can see, only two contemporary musicians had any time for him, Robert and Clara Schumann, whose music will definitely be the subject of a future podcast, and we'll listen to a little bit of Robert's later today as well. Tchaikovsky was not alone in thinking him, in his words, a scoundrel, and a giftless bastard. Liszt, Bruckner, Berlioz, Wolff were all at odds with him, as notably was Richard Wagner. All of them resented his determination to hold on and advance the legacy of the Baroque and classical masters, such as Bach and Beethoven, rather than push on into pastures new and avenues more adventurous. Happily, he now has enough supporters to ensure that his music is widely played even if it continues to divide opinion. It's why I've always been amused by the fact that my father's favourite composer was Wagner, while his favourite piece of music was Brahms's Ein Deutsches Requiem. He would often say to us that on his demise, he would be greatly comforted in knowing that he'd arrived at the right place if the first sounds he heard were that of the heavenly hosts greeting him with this piece. And so I want to share with you a movement from this Requiem, which was a smash hit when it was first performed in 1868, guaranteeing Brahms financial security for the rest of his life. When people hear the word requiem, many instinctively and reasonably think of Fauré, Mozart and Verdi, all big hit numbers. Brahms's, not written for the repose of the dead in the traditional Christian Latin, but in German with words from the Lutheran text, is a piece very much for the living, opening with the lines, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. So it's time we had some choral music, and I hope this will encourage you to listen to the rest of it at another time, because it has some ethereal melodies and dramatic moments. The movement here is Wie lieblich sind deine Wohnungen, How lovely are thy dwellings. It speaks of how my soul requires and yearns for the courts of the Lord. I mention this, because you can really detect that longing in this recording, a tension which gives way to the calm and joyful knowledge of what those courts will promise. Simeon Bitchkoff, the conductor, extracts wonderful diction from the NDR choir, while never losing control of a beautiful mingling of voices, both with each other and the Kölner Philharmonie Orchestra. I saw him conduct Verdi's Requiem at the Albert Hall a number of years ago, and it must have been a full 30 or 40 seconds before anyone dared to applaud at the end. You will have surmised that I am a Brahms fan. If you aren't, I'm unlikely to convert you. But if you are new to his music, I hope you will warm to its heavenly and romantic nature.
I love that passage and it has a special poignancy for me because the words how lovely are thy dwellings are the ones inscribed on the small door which houses my father's ashes in a columbarium in London. 
Tchaikovsky may not have been a fan of Brahms, but his own music has been hugely popular. Six symphonies, a violin concerto, one of the most widely played piano concertos, and those ballets, of course, Nutcracker, Sleeping Beauty and Swan Lake. He also wrote a few operas, Eugenio Onegin, my personal favourite, which we'll visit another time, and La Pique Dame, The Queen of Spades, being two of the most widely performed. Tchaikovsky's music is about as romantic as you can get. Huge and expansive melodies with plenty of drama, joy and melancholy. I'm going to play an aria now from The Queen of Spades, which I hope will be new to many of you. Beyond the very briefest of summaries, I'm not going to trouble you with a plot in detail here. It's a tragic Pushkin tale about a man called Herman who has two abiding passions in his life, gambling with cards and Lisa, who just happens to be engaged to somebody else. She is the granddaughter of a countess who has a secret which ensures her success at cards every time, and Herman is obviously keen to get hold of it. Whoever came up with the expression, unlucky in cards, lucky in love, must have been blissfully unaware of this Pushkin tale. Luck runs out on both sides. But this aria, in which Herman declares his love for Lisa, is a gem, and she duly falls for him. Hard not to, really, with words like, I love you beyond measure, I cannot live without you, especially when it's sung by the bass baritone Dmitri Vorostovsky, who died tragically young at the age of 58 in 2017. I was lucky enough to hear him live on a number of occasions, and was nothing less than enraptured. His voice was stunning, and he had this Sevi Ballesteros charisma, which meant that you just couldn't take your eyes off him. This recording is from the 1989 Cardiff Singer of the World competition, which he won. The note towards the end, which has a beautifully controlled crescendo, that's the gradual increase in volume, then followed in the same breath by an equally controlled diminuendo, which is its exact opposite, would have left his fellow competitors knowing they just heard the winner, and may have left them a little deflated. But another participant that year, as it happens, was one Brintafel, which only goes to show that not winning isn't always such a bad thing. This is Tchaikovsky at his romantic best and in the hands of one of his greatest practitioners. Я подвиг силы без 
Richard Strauss attracts some controversy because of his affiliations in the Second World War. Not all of them what they seem, and we'll go into that another time. But there are times when you have to separate the man from the music, in the same way you might with one certain Richard Wagner. Besides which, Strauss wrote some of the loveliest music of the 20th century, and was probably the finest ever composer for the soprano voice. Strauss's father, Franz, was the principal horn player in the Munich State Opera. At the tender age of 19, the young Richard composed a concerto for the horn, which he hoped his father would play on its first performance. Despite being very accomplished, Strauss Sr. took one look at the score and decided it was so difficult that if he did play it, he would be in grave danger of doing himself a serious injury. So that honour went to somebody else. These last six minutes are full of almost relentless exuberance, but technically fiendish to play. There are also moments which hint at his future skills of orchestration. Dialogues with a woodwind, for example, and the faintest of touches on the strings. 
It requires the highest level of breathing control, a demand met comfortably by the late Australian Barry Tuckwell in this recording with the London Symphony Orchestra conducted by Itzvan Kertesch. You will find versions which may appear smoother in sound, but Tuckwell was not one for caution. This is a gutsy, brassy, no-holds-barred performance, and as such, I suspect one which the youthful Strauss would have wholeheartedly endorsed.
I mentioned Robert Schumann, who lived between 1812 and 1856, at the beginning of today's podcast, and I want to give you a sample of his gorgeous music now. Schumann had a life defined by chronic depression, and it can't have been a breeze being married to Clara Wieck, after huge protestations by his parents and experiments with countless others, most likely both sexes. Her talents at the keyboard were superior to almost everyone at the time and Robert's own extraordinary gift at the piano was cut short prematurely by a finger injury. His parents were not in favour of him becoming a musician at all. Law was the preferred route of his mother. His is a truly sad, complicated and tormented story, which I can't hope to convey fully here. The marriage itself is the stuff of folklore, a life riddled with self-doubt, drink and a suicide attempt. It ended in an asylum. But his legacy is music which goes right to the heart, as this little offering will demonstrate. I'll be gobsmacked if you don't instantly want to replay it. It's exactly what I did the first time I heard it. I do like the oboe, don't you? I remember being asked by an elderly companion many years ago at a concert. It took me slightly by surprise, because I hadn't been especially aware of it during the piece we just heard. And no, actually, if I'm honest, it doesn't feature amongst my favourite instruments never has. Altogether too penetrating, which has not stopped it being given some glorious tunes, notably the opening of the second movement of Brahms's Violin Concerto, prompting one of the great virtuosos of the day, Pablo de Sarasate, to refuse to play the piece, because he was damned if he was going to stand there for a couple of minutes in silence, while somebody else got the best tune. And then I heard this, not so long ago in fact, the second of three romances for oboe and piano, a piece which fits Hector Berlioz's definition of the instrument perfectly. The sounds are suitable for expressing simplicity, gentle happiness, or the grief of a weak soul. There's nothing particularly virtuosic about this, but the melody and the performances by Céline Moinet, one of the world's finest oboists, and Florian Ulig on the piano are very special. Listen to Ulig's left hand, ever-present but never in danger of suppressing the oboe. Schumann marks the piece Einfach Innig, meaning simple and intimate, accomplished here in spades.
I'm no twitcher, but I'm lucky enough to live in an area in Kent where I'm surrounded by all manner of birdsong, and some of it not standard fare. The sound of the cuckoo, I accept, is not that unusual, but I'm always relieved to hear its first call, because like the seasons, it's one of life's more pleasurable reminders. My great-uncle Victor Healy Hutchinson's perfect pitch, that's the ability to sing or identify a musical note, was identified very early when he sang out the words cuckoo, adding E-C immediately afterwards. The German-born George Friedrich Handel moved to London in 1712, and with his remains now in Westminster Abbey, was never asked to leave. With big hits like The Water Music and The Messiah under his belt, he became a huge success, especially in the field of opera, as well as being a highly accomplished organist, who would combine these talents by introducing the premiere of each opera with an off-the-cuff ditty on the organ. Barely any of his solo compositions for the instrument survive now, but we are left with a group of organ concertos. One of them is known as the Cuckoo and the Nightingale. Handel was a stout, short-tempered man, plagued by ill health for much of his 71 bachelor years, including a later blindness, which did not nevertheless prevent him from playing or having a good sense of humour. Take the second movement of this piece, a chirpy dialogue between these two birds. Handel tended to outline the main parts, but would often leave pages totally blank with the words ad libitum inscribed, requiring a soloist to improvise as best he could. The score is now well established. Simon Preston is one of our foremost organists, and the conversation between the birds is clear. It's also a good tune, and he's accompanied by the English concert conducted by Trevor Pinnock. Thank you. 
That's it for now. Thank you for listening to Perfect Pitch with Nick Healy Hutchinson. He'll be back again next week with some more treasures for you. So please do join him then. And you can subscribe to this podcast by clicking on the link below.